Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. Hey, our children and our students can go to their learning environments now. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to the journey. So good to see each one of you. Um, Some of you already know a lot about my life story, others not so much, but I was teased and bullied as a child. Youngest of six, I was teased by my brother and four sisters. Um, If any of you are watching, love you. I don't hold this against you. But it changed me. Not a lot, but it changed me. Uh, The bullying was worse. I went into high school, I was a late bloomer. I was the right age, but I was a late bloomer. Went through puberty very, very late, which actually worked for me in some really important ways. But the way that it did not work for me, imagine me at uh, about 5'4 and 103 pounds going into high school as a freshman. Put me in a vulnerable spot. And so I was picked on, I think, about three times in particular. One of the most poignant ones was my freshman year in freshman PE, and we had the 1.5 mile exam, and I took that seriously, and so I was actually, uh, you know, going at a really great clip, but as I lapped, a guy named Mark, I will withhold his last name, he likely still lives in Arizona, and I actually want to protect him now. Funny work of grace that God worked in my heart, but Mark, an early bloomer, a big football player guy that resented that I was perhaps making him look bad and working so hard, when I passed him at the one mile mark, he shoved me, and I did a full Superman into the dirt track at Arcadia High School, and I got up, bloodied, and finished the mile and a half, and because I'm so committed to my test score, I went up to the PE teacher and said, hey, Mark pushed me down and it messed up my time. And so now what happened is not only was I, I a runt, a late bloomer that got picked on, but now I'm a tattletale. And so that didn't work out so well for me. Bullied. Not a lot. Three major times that I remember like that. Not a lot, but enough to change me. Neuroscience tells us that we have three basic responses under extreme stress. Fight, flight, or freeze. I believe these are God-given gifts to keep us alive in a fallen world. And every single one of us here has experienced one or more of these extreme stress responses. This Fight, flight, or free system can also become hyperactivated. I know some of, some of us walk around always on. This thing has become overblown in us, and that's some of our low-grade or extreme anxiety that we live with. Others of us keep it at bay, but there's another problem. And that is hidden triggers that have been placed there by others 
along our journey. And when touched off, sends us immediately into DEFCON 1, stress response, fight, flight, or freeze. In my teens, late teens and early 20s, I began to grow physically and athletically. Put on height and weight and muscle, and so I stopped being bullied. But the thing that I did not recognize was the hidden triggers that had been placed in my spirit, in my soul. Furthermore, I took on some new triggers as I experienced new kinds of bullies called church bullies. I was in a church that was sick and dying, and there were many kinds of people that were fighting for control. Bullied. Not a lot, but enough to change me. Bullies themselves trigger me. And I no longer freeze or take flight. My initial response is to foam up and to put up my dukes. And unfortunately, there have been times when I have mistakenly gone after the wrong person. That I have perceived someone to be a church bully. Church bullies, all kinds of varieties of theological bullies or, or uh, doctrinal snobs about something or control or in there have been times where I have been triggered and I've picked a fight with a sweet brother or sister in Christ. My reactivity, my fight instinct, my triggers have negatively impacted me as an adult. It's negatively impacted my teaching from the pulpit, in small groups, and in person. It's negatively impacted my preaching, my shepherding, my leading, my marriage, and my parenting. I will say this, I was not responsible for my experiences. I'm not responsible for the fact that I lived through some of these things and now I have triggers. But I am responsible for what I do with these triggers. What I, how I behave. Not my brothers and sisters, not this guy named Mark, not church people, me. I am responsible. And I'm responsible. I love what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians. That when I was a child, I spoke like a child. Behaved like a child. But when I grew up, I put childish things away. And that there's a time and a place to, to look at the backstory and understand how we got here. But there's also a time to say, this is on me now. I am responsible. I need to grow up and out of these behaviors. I need to grow up and into my walk with Jesus Christ. These stress responses are in every single one of our lives, every single one of of us in here have these kinds of triggers and guess what they make for lousy relationships don't they friendships marriages parenting ministry leadership and even evangelism 
And so when we're triggered and we pick the wrong fight, and we pick the wrong posture, people get hurt. And the message of Jesus that should not only come from our lips, but also from our posture, suffers harm. This morning, we continue in our 12-week sermon series in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. And again, by way of review, time was running out for the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy are his final words. And for that reason, this letter can be described as intense, urgent, and emphatic. Paul was so concerned for his young disciple, Pastor Timothy. And he recognized that he, he was in danger of spiritual compromise. He was in danger of cowardness. We see in Timothy, it's more likely a flight or freeze response. But sometimes it's the awareness of how weak and insecure we are that causes the greatest fight response. Sometimes it's the little dog that knows who he is that has the biggest bark and sometimes get in and actually bite. Paul's concerned about these things in Timothy. And he understood and was concerned for the health of the church, the church around the world, the church in Ephesus, but also the effectiveness and faithfulness of Timothy. Last week, our text, we looked at the idea of how to become vessels of honor, ready to be used by the master, available for any good work. And part of that becoming a vessel of honor uh, was to cleanse ourselves from that which is dishonorable. And in the context and seeing what became before and what now we're looking at what comes after, we discover that that which is dishonorable includes testosterone-fueled, hyper-aroused fight to win arguments, some of which should never be engaged in the first place. And in order to be a vessel of honor, Timothy, and us included, must be self-regulated and appropriate in spite of having stress responses and triggers in our lives. As we try to teach and correct and train others, as we are involved in discipling others, either directly or those who are just observing our life and our faith, that we must pay attention to not only what we say, but how we say it. This morning we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 23 to 26. So if you have your Bibles, read along. You'll see it up on the screen as well, where the Apostle Paul says these words. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is now the third time in 2 Timothy alone that the Apostle Paul has talked about this issue of unnecessary arguments. Why? Why does it come up so many times in 2 Timothy? Of all the things that the Apostle Paul could share, his most urgent final instructions to Timothy and to the church, you want to know why, I think, is because it's such a problem in the church around the world and throughout the centuries that Paul hits this issue again and again and again. When we see things like this that are so clear and so redundant in the scripture, we can assume that these are things that are really important to the heart of God. And it's likely that it's also something that we as believers really struggle with. Long after becoming followers of Jesus, trying to grow up and into our new identity as children of God, we struggle. And this is one of those themes, one of those topics that comes up again and again and again from Genesis to Revelation. The Lord must have really wanted Timothy to get this one clear. And the Lord must really want us to get this one clear. And so let me just give us a bottom line, a takeaway. If you're going to take a nap, that's okay. You might just need to sleep. But, but before you do, listen to this bottom line. We're here to win souls, not arguments. Arguments matter. Truth matters. Doctrine matters. Do not misquote me. But we're here to win souls, not arguments. More relationships, ministries, marriages, households, and churches have been destroyed because of a lack of understanding and priority on this matter. Truth and doctrine matters, but the flavor of that truth, the character of that truth, matters just as much, if not more. I recall back to the opening of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of the commandment. There is a commandment. The goal of the commandment is love. Love that issues from a pure heart, a, clean, a, a sincere faith, and a pure or clean conscience. It's supposed to work. And be transformational. We're here to win souls, not arguments. Proverbs 11.30 is a scripture that comes to mind. Where Solomon said, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And whoever captures souls is wise. This is the way of wisdom. We are here to win souls. To capture souls. Not to win arguments. Donald Guthrie, commentator on this text, says the apostles' advice to Timothy to gently instruct those who oppose is calculated to win them over. To capture them. 
rather than to antagonize them. Can I just make an observation from my 54 years of life on planet Earth and 54 years in the church? Gospel truth, I was born in a, in a pew and nursed on hymns. I was in church the first Sunday I was breathing air. But in all my years, I have never once, never once seen a single instance where the loser of an angry, heated theological debate actually changed his position to that of his opponent. Not a single instance. Instead, what I see is a hardening of the position. We see it not just in the church, but all over the place. And yet we think that the way forward is to double down on our position with anger and emphasis. Can't see, see a single instance where that feisty, argumentative reactivity has produced a positive and godly outcome. How about you? Have you seen it? Can you think of the last argument, theological or otherwise, where your angry response turned out as a good thing? That it actually worked what God would have to happen. So the question in our text here this morning is this. How do we win more to Christ? How do we win more back to Christ and the church and to relationship rather than merely win more arguments? You ready for this? Because I think we've got a lot to look at in this text. I want to begin by cherry-picking a little bit of verse 23 and 25 and make an observation. Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. And yet, verse 25, he says, correcting his opponents. And so what do you do with this? Because these seem to be in tension or even opposition. That I'm not going to be argumentative, period, end of sentence. And yet, there's a time and a place to correct those who are in opposition. And here's the fill in the blank. There are doctrines important enough to correct. And we must know the difference. Now, if you're here two weeks ago or even last week, you go, haven't we talked about this? Yes. Yes, we've talked about it. And we must talk about it again because it's here again. Perhaps the Lord's trying to get through to us. And you've heard repetition is the mother of all learning. So, Again and again, we need to understand there are doctrines that are important enough to correct. Notice I didn't say fight, fight over, argue over, but to bring correction. And the idea here is that Timothy nor we are allowed to live in a constant state of freeze or flight. We cannot be passive. There are some things that must be corrected. In fact, this is a, a great little verse from the brother of Jesus. In his tiny epistle at the end of the, our collection, it's called the book of Jude. It's one chapter. So you say Jude 3. That's not a chapter. That's a verse. Jude 3. He says, Beloved, although I, I was very eager 
to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Contend. There's something worth correcting there. But he goes on to say what part of the faith or what kind of faith we are to contend for. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is still the first century. And what Jude is saying is that which must be contended for is already here and known. So one of the layers that we just ask is how late in church history did this topic become a, uh, uh, a battle line? Because the things that, that Jude is saying must, need, must be contended over, must be corrected and addressed are things that were already clear in the first century church. Furthermore, even as we contend, never are we to be contentious. So that's the first thing. There are things important enough to correct. On the other hand, there are things that we need to learn to walk away from and to ignore. Not worth our brain space, time, or effort. They're described by the Apostle Paul in our text this morning. Foolish, that's the word moros, where we get the word moron or moronic. Translation is stupid. That's a stupid argument. That's a stupid topic. Moros, foolish. Ignorant means without instruction or uneducated. The person arguing didn't do their homework. Don't bother. Walk away. And then their controversies. This is built on a really cool root word that means seeking after. The problem is the controversy is a seeking after something that cannot or need not be found. And these kinds of, of derogatory descriptions of the kinds of things that we are not to engage in are all over the scriptures, all over the pastoral epistles. If I would just take you back into 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with them. In chapter 6, talking about false teachers that are in the church and they love this theological food fight. They love to take non-essential things and make them a battle line. And he says this about them. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions. And then at the very end of 1 Timothy, the final sign-off, the final parting salvo, he says to Timothy in, in chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And what might that look like? To guard the ministry carefully and the gifting that God gave to Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So we know there's a thing or many kinds of things. We know that there's doctrine that should be corrected and many other kinds of things that should be avoided. So what are they? Because it would be a lot simpler if we just had the list 
and I just started going down my list, and I forced you to believe my list. The problem is that Paul doesn't give us his list, therefore I cannot give you my list. This is an area of wisdom. This is an area of a lifelong learning. I don't know that we ever arrive or that we should ever calcify our position on all things in the list. We do know some things that are non-negotiable. We've gone over those. We've talked about gospel-centered things. But what's the list of irreverent, silly myths, controversies, quarrels about words, irreverent babble, contradictions, foolish, ignorant controversies? I don't know. And I think they actually change. The list changes according to time and place and culture and the character of the people. And so Paul kept it open. And so what, what are we to do? We are to grow. We are to have a reasonable conversation. We are to be lifelong learners. We are to be humble. Humble. We know there's a list on each side. But we are to be thoughtful, careful, and wise. Now, a couple weeks ago, we brought up the idea, and I want to develop it a little bit more. And we described it as theological triage. And I didn't really explain that metaphor. But in theological triage, just capitalizing on that word triage, because this is what we need to do. And I, I would say, more now than ever, in the day and age in which we live, not only as Christians in the church, but Christians in society, that we are called to a kind of triage to think through what matters, what can I walk away from, say, that would be a poor use of my time, likely cause further damage. What is mission critical that I cannot be silent on? And we're constantly thinking through this. There, there are injuries so, so severe that they require a helicopter transport to a level one trauma center. And when that helicopter lands, it's all hands on deck in the ER. There are other kinds of injuries and sicknesses. People go to the ER and the triage nurse goes, yeah, that one can wait. And you know what I'm talking about. And you can wait and wait and wait and wait. And they might even say, hey, just call your doctor on Monday morning. Because that's not a head wound. That's not a gut wound. That's a toe wound. And you're going to live. You're going to be okay. In the same, the same way, there's, there's issues so, so important. They require our immediate attention. We need to gather. We need to have a conversation. Like Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, that, that was tied to the nature of grace and salvation. And the atonement of Jesus Christ. What is required to be forgiven of sin? And to come into the family of God. Circumcision, keeping all of the Mosaic law. These are really, really important level one trauma center conversations. And there are other issues so unimportant, divisive, triggering, and unhelpful. We would do better to walk away. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I threw up a slide. You're going to see another version of it from Gavin Ortland's book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. I'm going to throw it up again there. It changed it a little bit and underlined some important descriptors. 
we need to have this running in the background. First-ranked doctrines are essential to the gospel. Second-ranked doctrines are urgent for the church. Third-ranked doctrines are important to Christian theology, but by the, by the time we use the word important, we're not saying mission critical right now. Those are the things that are essential or urgent. It's important. We didn't say it's not important. And then finally, fourth-ranked doctrines are indifferent. It doesn't matter. And so to have this as a rubric, if you will, to think through, what are we arguing about again? Should we just go to lunch now? Or, no, we're going to ha actually cancel our lunch plans. Now, there are many who believe that there are, are, are many more first-tier issues, and others who don't believe much of anything belongs on that level. So how do we actually do this theological triage? And I'm going to give you another squishy answer. I don't know exactly. I only know what I do. And so in preparation for today's sermon, I did my best to, to do what I've been doing for a lot of years, and I have not arrived. But there's a series of, of unarticulated questions that are running like background software in my brain. And I made an attempt to actually write those down. And the way these function is like a grid. And when I come up against a topic and a question, and how important is this, I've got about seven questions. Some of them overlap. It's not the clearest grid, but I want to offer them to you as well. Questions that help me do theological triage. But you must develop your own grid. So here it is. First, is this issue, is this topic... An essential component of the gospel message which is required for salvation. Essential for salvation. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing? He never went beyond level one doctrines in Corinth, so he says. When he planted the church there, Nothing fancy, nothing extra, only the central issues. They're essential for the gospel required for salvation. Number two, if you believe something to belong in that top tier, central to the gospel message, here's a question to vet that further. How many steps of argumentation does it take you to tie it back to the gospel message? Because we go, no, it matters. I promise you it matters. Okay, walk me through it. And it's like five steps to get back there, which just says maybe, maybe it's a second tier doctrine. Thirdly, what does this do to a person's faith if this doctrine is missed? Does it destroy the gospel's ability to save or forgive that person? Reasking in another way, remember we're building a grid. Number four, now we're moving on from its ability or its importance to bring the forgiveness of sins. 
Now we're going to talk about does it help us grow up and into our new fine faith? How important is this doctrine for growing up in faith and following Jesus? What happens to a person's faith if they don't know about this doctrine or if they've got it dead wrong? Does it negate the ability of the message to transform them? Does it destroy the gospel's ability to sanctify them and make them more like Jesus? Number five, does this doctrine itself seem to generate godliness and goodness in its in, adhe, in, sorry, adherence? Those that say this is so important and you need to believe this, it's a shibboleth. I won't go into that, but it's a really important term. Shibboleth. This is a dividing line. If, if you don't say what I want you to say, I'm out of here. And there's this combativeness. And by the way, in, in the uh, biblical account, it's in the book of Judges, it was a civil war within a tribe. And the shibboleth was a test of where they were from. Half of the tribe got the fords of the Jordan River, and everyone returning had to come through the, the, the checkpoint, and they said, say, shibboleth. And if they said shibboleth, they could pass safely. But if they said sibboleth, and they couldn't say shibboleth, they'd slit their throats. They were all Jews. They were all Israelites. And they were murdering each other based on the pronunciation of a word. Does this seem to amp up? Are there a lot of shibboleth sightings on this topic Six, is this doctrine genuinely clear in the Bible? A couple more questions that fall under that. Is said doctrine the proper interpretation or intended emphasis of the particular text under examination? Is this doctrine that you say is tied to this text, is it the only faithful reading of this text? Or are there other potential faithful readings of that same text? Furthermore, do other biblical texts stand in tension with this one? But you're strong-arming your favorite doctrine in ignoring a whole bunch of other Bible passages that stand in tension. And then number seven, how has the church wrestled with this issue throughout history? Has it ever been resolved yet in 2,000 years? What has this issue done to unite or divide brothers, friends, and churches? So those are some of my questions, back, background software, an attempt to actually bring it forward and show you the binary zeros and ones of that software. Um, build your own grid, but do theological triage. Yes, there are doctrines important enough to correct, and we have to know the difference. Now, we just doubled back and re-preached two weeks ago and something we touched last week. I recognize that. That's a lot. But I think it's that important. That important that we just doubled down. The rest of the text, however, is not so much what, but how. It's the spirit of the man or the woman that is in the conversation or tempted to enter that conversation and the first thing i want you to see here in this text is correct when necessary yes do that don't be passive but don't be combative remember we're here to win souls not arguments verse 24 the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome 
The meaning behind that word in the original language, makomai, is hand-to-hand combat. It's a feistiness. Put up your dukes. We're about to throw down. Must not be combative or quarrelsome. Yes, we are fighters. We are wrestlers, but not against flesh and blood. We're here fighting invisible forces of darkness. And an enemy that according to 1 Corinthians, he has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe they've been taken captive. We're not against them. We're against the one who has captured them. The, ser- the, the Lord's servant must fight the good fight of faith. That's 1 Timothy 6.12. But never to be quarrelsome with others. Correct, yes, but with great wisdom, self-awareness, and self-control. Listen to the list that Paul gives Timothy in 1 Timothy for elders, the office of overseer in the church. Listen to the list. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing to want to grow in influence and impact and leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This is like an umbrella statement over all the other kinds of character qualities that he's about to name. And the word there, uh, above reproach, means without handles. There are going to be people that try to slap accusations on this individual because that's the nature of spiritual leadership. They're going to judge your motives. They're going to judge your words. They're going to be critical. But in the end... There's no handles to grab this person. How do you do that? The rest of the terms explain. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome just can't be that way and you go well I'm not an elder I'm not aspiring I'm not Timothy the Lord's servant are you the Lord's servant aren't we all servants of the Lord and and if there's a standard for the office of overseer there's not a double standard there's not a higher standard that's just the standard of Christ and the idea is that those who aspire to it must be pointing in the right direction and making progress in the standard not a higher standard. Therefore, what's good for the overseer is good for all of us. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Because remember, we're here to win souls, not arguments. And then here's the final fill in the blank, final thing that I want to point out. We know what it's like to try harder, double down, This time around, try softer. Try softer. And that's not just just back off, relax, but it really is back off and relax. But it's also even as you correct, even as you press in, go in softer, not harder. Try softer knowing it is God who changes hearts. 
We've seen this in the text. The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then look what he says. God might, he may grant repentance. Where does repentance come from? Do all people at all times have equal access to repentance? And the answer is no. Ultimately, this this actually teaches God is the one who gives this beautiful gift, and we don't know who, when, how, or why. God may, though, grant this repentance, and when it comes, it's a gift from him. And so we don't have to strong arm. We don't have to defend God. We don't have to show up and bully people into the truth. Because it's God who changes hearts. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. After being captured by him to do his will. Try softer. Knowing it is God who changes hearts. Now before we go on and finish this point. I do need to say there are times and places where we are called to um, a confrontational style. And if I didn't say that, I would be disingenuous with the rest of the scriptures. Those instances, however, are fewer and farther in between. And we don't have time to get into them, but I can, I can demonstrate, I can show you. Uh, the pastoral epistle of Titus is very confrontational. So you can go and look and say, oh, there's a time and a place to really show up in strength. We also see it in the life of Jesus. We see Jesus flipping over the table of the money changers. That's a real thing. We are allowed to feel anger. And Paul says, be angry, but in your anger, do not what? Sin. So there's anger's real. Triggers are real. Confrontation is a real thing. But before you go to that, and I'm talking in your household, in your marriage, with your friendships, in your email, oh my goodness, take the keyboard away from some of us. Try softer. Try softer. Knowing it's God who changes hearts. The words here, kind, must be kind to everyone is mild, a mildness of disposition. Patiently enduring evil. That means you can actually take a lot of punches and you don't punch back. Correcting, you go, yeah, we're going we're gonna to set that straight. You know, it's, it's built on the idea of parenting children over time, bringing correction. Gentleness is the key word mildness of disposition meekness gentleness of spirit we are to try softer this has been the way of wisdom throughout the scriptures throughout time and space throughout history that we go in softer listen to the the wisdom of solomon proverbs 15 1 a soft answer turns away wrath But a harsh word stirs up anger. So try softer. Proverbs 15, 4, a gentle tongue. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So try softer. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. 
and adds persuasiveness to his lips, so try softer. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention, so try softer. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding, so try softer. We're out of time. I've got three more pages. It happened. But if we can just park it here and understand these words from the brother of Jesus. He says in James chapter 3 that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is the way of wisdom. This is the way of the Lord. We're here to win souls, not arguments. So next time, try softer. Let's pray. Father, you have been very gentle with each one of us. Times when, when we have been tempted to destroy our lives, perhaps you showed up in force, did something radical to keep us, and for that we're grateful. We're grateful that you can be and are at times confrontational, but the sum total of our life journey and the instructions in the word of God is to a gentleness, a meekness, a mildness, it's not that we don't care about truth. It's not that we don't care about logic, but Lord, that there's a, a, a reasonableness. Lord, would you form that in us? That there would be great unity in our marriages, in our households. We would be effective as parents. Not set off our children on a path of rebellion because we're so uptight. Lord, pray that you would use this to unify the church. Pray that you would use this even as we interact with strangers and people that we completely disagree with on so many things, and yet there'd be a kindness and a gentleness and a sweetness that they can actually smell the beautiful fragrance and aroma of Jesus Christ, the kindness and patience and forbearance of the creator in and through our lives. May we be these people and we pray this together in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.